Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, the book of Romans, chapter one, the second continuation. Now, while we're not going to spend as long in every chapter, Chapter 1 of Romans has so many important terms and God principles in it that it's necessary that we go slow and we carefully clarify these terms and flesh out these principles. Then we're going to have a far better basis for understanding what God, through Paul, is telling us. Now we're going to spend most of this lesson looking at just one word. Righteous. I have so much to say to you today about that term. What it means. That we're not going to review last week's lesson except to say that verses 16 and 17 outlines the theme not just for chapter 1 but for the entire book of Romans. What Paul says And those two verses essentially defines his basic understanding of his messianic faith and especially so when it comes to the role of the word righteous or righteousness. Now while several of the terms he uses to express his faith understanding are commonly used in Christianity, I think if I asked most of you to explain them I'd get a startled look or dead silence. I don't fault you for that. Most Bible scholars glide right by these terms without bothering to define them. And those scholars who do define those terms don't necessarily agree with one another. So this is my way of saying to you that this is another one of those worms we're going to allow to crawl out from our can of worms before we carefully close that lid back, at least for the time being. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, page 1402 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. And we're going to look at two verses, verses 16 and 17. I want you to look at it with me. For I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. For in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight, and from beginning to end it is through trust. As the Tanakh puts it, but the person who is righteous will live his life by trust. There's that word righteous that we're going to focus on today. Now let me begin by saying that as fond as I am of the complete Jewish Bible, in verse 17, too much liberty has been taken with the original Greek. And it's it's created kind of a poor translation that, that leads us off in the wrong direction. Now I'm going to give you a much better translation shortly, but let's first take a short detour. Now although I've discussed... Bible versions and Bible translations with you before. It probably makes sense for me to say it again. There is no such thing 
as the one best, most accurate Bible version. It doesn't exist. And the main reason I say this is because any version that we read in English is more than a translation. It is necessarily a redaction due to the translation process. A translator's job is to make the meaning of the scriptures in their original language understandable to English speakers or whatever language they're translating into. Therefore, they must make choices about what English words to use and often those choices consciously or unconsciously reflect personal theological viewpoints, biases, cultural norms. I'm sorry, but in the end, if you want to maintain, uh, rather, if you want to obtain the most accurate possible Bible translation, or Bible version, rather, you have to use the original language manuscripts. Of course, very few people are true language scholars. It's a full time vocation preceded by many years of university preparation. But there are some wonderful Bible programs that allow people with only limited Hebrew or Greek knowledge to learn the nuances of those words so that they can compare them against the many English or other Bible translations to try to reach the best possible interpretation. Now, I field a never-ending stream of requests from folks to advise them of the best Bible or the one that is a direct, this is the other one I get, word for word, literal translation. And I'm here to tell you that such a thing would sound so odd in English that it would be near to impossible to make sense of it. The grammatical structures of Hebrew and Greek don't have precise one-to-one -one English equivalents. But even more as concerns the New Testament, behind those Greek words, and this is so important, behind those Greek words are the Hebrew thought patterns of their Hebrew authors who are attempting to express themselves about their Hebrew religion. But because, as in Paul's case, the writers were usually sending their letters to Greek speakers in the diaspora. They couldn't use their Hebrew language to express themselves. Why? The recipients wouldn't be able to read it. Now as one who has been privileged to travel extensively internationally, I can tell you that even if someone in another country is able to speak English, well enough, many of the words and terms we use in our Western vocabulary mean something different to them. And that's because the terms and the words that we use have a direct relationship to our particular culture. Merely speaking a foreign language in no way assumes any understanding whatsoever of the societies in which that is their native language. I mean, just because I might be able to speak Spanish 
certainly doesn't mean I have any understanding of Mexican culture or of the cultures of Puerto Rico or Spain or Argentina. I mean, one of the best examples of this that I delight in retelling is that several years ago, I purchased a riding toy for one of my grandchildren. It, of course, required assembly, and it was made in, where else? China. So the English, English assembly instructions were written by English-speaking Chinese. Everything was going along well until I read the following instruction. Insert bolt through the wheel hub and tighten the nut until it's happy. <laughs> happy? How am I supposed to know when the nut's happy? In English, the term happy is reserved as an expression of emotion. Apparently in Chinese culture, it carries a little different meaning. It can even be extended to inanimate objects. It more means to make something or maybe someone right or functioning in harmony. So, the reason for the existence of the scores of different Bible versions in English alone has to do with what choices a particular Bible translator or board of Bible editors made about how to define certain Greek or Hebrew words. And since almost all translators are beholden to one denomination or another, they quite naturally use words that best uphold their theological beliefs. And believe me, some Bibles are translated by atheists. That may come as a surprise, but it's true. The complete Jewish Bible is no different. So why do I use it? Because it reads so well when spoken out loud and because it inserts some words and names in Hebrew to constantly remind us that the Bible is a Hebrew document from Genesis to Revelation. That's why I use it. Now, although it's a helpful tool, the complete Jewish Bible is not the greatest study Bible. The best solution for most students of God's Word is to use a variety of Bibles with the complete Jewish Bible as just one of them. On paper, one of the better technical translations is the King James Version. But the problem with it is that it uses an antiquated dialect of English that was spoken 500 years ago. And so many of the English words used in the complete, uh, rather the King James Version, had a very different meaning then than it does for us who use modern English. There is one translation that I encourage people to avoid, the NIV. It is clearly an agenda-driven Bible that will add or delete words and phrases and portions of verses to assure that its particular humanistic worldview is put forward. So with that, what is the better and more accurate translation? We started all this. 
of Romans 117 than the complete Jewish Bible. We find it in the English Standard Version, the ESV, and it is spoken essentially this same way in many other familiar English Bible versions. For, And listen carefully to this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now remember how our complete Jewish Bible translated the same verse. It translates to that, for in it is revealed how God makes people righteous in his sight. Did you hear the substantial difference between those two? The ESV speaks of the righteousness of God. The complete Jewish Bible speaks of the righteousness of people. Now I know what the rather where the complete Jewish Bible is trying to go with this approach. But it is not true enough to the original language so it muddles the picture on a matter of extreme importance to believers. There is probably no word that means fundamentally more to Judaism and to Christianity than the word righteous. And if we don't know how God intends for us to understand that term, then we have a pretty major hole in the understanding of our faith, perhaps in our relationship with Him. So, what is the righteousness of God? What does that mean? What is God's righteousness? But even before we answer that, what does righteous mean in a generic sense? I'm going to tell you up front that the answer to that question, not surprisingly, is found in the Torah. In fact, the best explanation of the critical term righteous can be found in the book of Exodus. Now I'll tell you a bit more about that momentarily. But first, in order to come to an informed and useful understanding of what righteous and righteousness mean in our Bibles, we need a very brief lesson in Greek and in Hebrew. With apologies to true language scholars whom I admire beyond words, I'm going to explain this in easier terms that non-language scholars can understand. As we find it in the New Testament, the English word righteous and its variations, such as righteousness, these are a translation of the Greek word dikeu. dikeu. Now, dikeu has a few variations of itself as well, such as dikeos, dikeosine, and then there's a couple more. But they all have the same basic root meaning. English translators say that in English the root meaning of that word dikeu is righteous. Okay, simple enough. However, how did the Greek word dikeu get chosen for this particular passage that we're looking at, Romans 1.17? In our case it seems Paul chose it. I'd say he knows what he's doing. My contention is that without fail, Paul is always expressing Hebrew thought patterns in his writings 
So we need to understand what this word meant within a Hebrew society. So in this particular case of verse 17, is there a way for me to prove my contention? Fortunately, more than 250 years before Christ was born, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. That translation is called the Septuagint. Now we know from a very ancient document called the Letter of Aristeus that this translation project took place in Alexandria, Egypt where there was an enormous Jewish population of almost a million. And the letter tells us that some of the Jerusalem temples, finest scholarly priests were sent to Alexandria to supply Hebrew Bible scrolls for the effort and to participate in the translation process so that it would remain as true as possible to the original intent. Now, understanding that there will always be imperfections and some loss of precision in translations. Therefore, when we compare the word-for-word Greek of the Septuagint to the word-for-word Hebrew Bible, we should be able to see then exactly which Greek word those ancient Hebrew scholars chose to, to translate any particular Hebrew word. Just hold them side by side. And when we do that, we find that the same Greek word from the Septuagint, used in a similar context in the New Testament, also written in Greek, then we have ourselves kind of a biblical Rosetta Stone. A voice from the past is telling us what the ancients meant to convey from a Hebrew language and cultural viewpoint and then how to carry it across to an entirely different language and culture. Or in another sense, we have a means to find out from an Old Testament Hebrew perspective what the New Testament writer is attempting to convey to us. And what we find is that the Greek word dikeu was the word chosen by the original writers and translators of the Septuagint to directly translate the Hebrew term tzedek. Tzedek. Therefore, if we want to truly know what dikeu, righteous, means in the New Testament, we need to study the Hebrew word tzedek in the Old Testament. That way, we will understand what the Hebrew Paul had in mind in his native Hebrew thought pattern. Now, I hope you're following me, because it's critical for believers to explore the proper and intended meaning of the term righteous. Now, the first thing is to understand is that righteous or righteousness, tzedek, as it applies to God, that is, God's righteousness, is quite different from how it applies to humans. My righteousness, your righteousness. <clears throat> now, as it applies to humans, it's pretty straightforward. Righteousness, tzedek, can indicate a person who is right with God. 
That is, righteousness is our desired status before the Lord. Or, it can also mean doing what is right. It describes a proper action or behavior. Thus, the word righteous also has a direct connection to the concept of covenant. Let me tell you how. A covenant is a document, whether it's oral or written, in which two parties agree to do certain things or to behave in certain agreed two ways. Therefore, from a covenant perspective, doing what is right from the Hebrew worldview means to do what God says to do. And where does God tell us what to do and what not to do? The covenant of Moses. The law. Righteous can also mean right in an ethical sense. Right versus wrong. Fair versus unfair. As, as we deal with our fellow man. And it can mean right in the sense of a person being in general conformity with God's known standards and rules. Now in Hebrew culture there was an everyday term for a person who was considered to be very pious because they, very, they carefully followed the terms of God's covenant with Israel, the law of Moses. This person was called a tzaddik, which means righteous one. Sadik. Now notice how Sadik and Sedek they come from the same root. So all of this comes into play when we're ascertaining what Paul was envisioning when he had to use the Greek term dikeu, righteous. Now conversely, the term unrighteous is only ever used in the Bible to speak of a human and never of God. And usually it is meant to convey the idea of a person being unethical. Now, righteousness is that was righteousness as concerns humans. Righteousness as concerns God is more complex. A couple of well-known places where dikeu, righteous, is used in the Septuagint as it applies to God sheds some light on how we're to understand what God's righteousness is. For instance, in Psalm 51.14, David says in a prayer, Deliver me from those who seek my blood, O God, the God of my salvation. My tongue will rejoice in your righteousness. In Isaiah 46.13, we hear this, I bring near my righteousness and my salvation will not delay. So righteousness, used in these two instances, and in several other instances, makes salvation and righteousness parallel terms. That's a very key understanding, so I want to say it again. As concerns God, salvation and righteousness are parallel terms. So in one sense, God's personal righteousness is His saving intervention for the sake of those who worship Him. And those who worship Him are in biblical terms always His covenant people. So now we see this organic connection 
develop between salvation, righteousness, and covenant. At least that's how we see it in Hebrew thought. However, as you're probably starting to see, it doesn't always translate over to Greek thought or to English-speaking cultures. So we lose an important understanding of some important faith principles. Psalm 31 gives us a slightly different aspect of God's righteousness. In verse 1, we read, In your righteousness deliver me and lead me out. So here God's righteousness seems to indicate God's faithfulness to the promise he's made to his people that he will be their deliverer from trouble and from danger. Another interesting aspect of God's righteousness is highlighted in Psalm 50. In verse 6 we hear, The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Following this verse, the subject of Psalm 50 continues and it is that Israel's gone astray, she's being called to repent or face God's wrath. So we see here that God's righteousness is all wrapped up in his justice, of which he is the supreme judge. He will show mercy and deliver those who are faithful to his covenant with Israel, but he will punish and even reject those who are not. God is the sole judge of this determination. So, then what does Paul mean by God's righteousness or the righteousness of God in verse 17? He means it in three senses. First, as a divine attribute of God such that he will always do right and be just. Second, it's a description of God's activity of establishing right within humans, but also punishing those who are wrong. And third, speaking of God's process of moving humans who are in a position of wrong into a position of being right before him. Christians would call this, we have a term for this, we call it being saved. I see God's righteousness embodying all three of these attributes. The common point of intersection and in all of these various aspects of God's righteousness is salvation. So the bottom line is this. In Paul's theology, God's righteousness is his saving will towards people. Anywhere and everywhere in Holy Scripture that we see the term God's righteousness or the righteousness of God, it means his saving will towards his people. I don't want to get bogged down here. I want you to know though that there is a lot more to this. And it can be found in Exodus 21. We've not discussed the important aspect of God's justice in relation to God's righteousness and because it's a pretty serious study all in itself. But if you want to understand this in a much more complete way, go online to study the Torah class lesson 
for Exodus chapter 21. There, justice and righteousness are discussed and how they relate to one another. But let's take this a step further. When we look at verses 16 and 17, we see four key phrases or terms that are used. The terms are the gospel, the power of God, salvation, and God's righteousness. The gospel, the power of God, salvation, and God's righteousness. Now to Paul, and in Hebrew thought, all these terms are roughly equivalent. The power of God refers to salvation. The power of God, oh hear me on this, the power of God is an actual force. Even though it's invisible. But so is magnetism and so is gravity. We sure know it exists. It's not simply an ideal. It's not a thought. Salvation happens by the power of God. That is, salvation happens by a divine force. God's righteousness expresses His will to save you. And the essence of the gospel is contained and manifested only in the power of God to save. We're not going to delve any deeper into the nuances of each of these terms for now. For the time being, it's enough to understand as we go forward in our study of Romans that to Paul, the terms gospel, power of God, salvation, and God's righteousness are tightly interconnected. They are terms that are not quite, but almost interchangeable. Well, the final words of verse 17 are the righteous will live by faith. Oh, we've heard that many, many times. The righteous will live by faith. You know where that phrase came from? Habakkuk 2.4. It's an Old Testament expression. Various English translations have slightly different ways of expressing what Paul said. The King James Version has a more literal translation of this verse from Habakkuk. And it reads like this. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just, the just shall live by his faith. Now notice in the complete Jewish Bible where we have the words the righteous will live by faith but in the King James Version of, of, of uh, Habakkuk that Paul quotes the words are the just shall live by faith now since Habakkuk is part of the Hebrew Bible part of the Old Testament and it's written in Hebrew then we see that When we look up that word that's being translated as just or righteous, guess what that Hebrew word is? Tzadik. Tzadik. That word we've been studying. What does Tzadik mean? 
It means righteous one. A very pious person. A righteous one. We discussed this term a few minutes ago. And it's commonly used Hebrew term. It refers to an especially righteous and zealous Jew. Those who are are known to follow the law of Moses scrupulously. So naturally, even though this verse is given to us in Greek, in Romans 1.17, nonetheless, it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. So we know exactly what Paul meant. He was picturing a tzaddik, a person who diligently follows the law of Moses. Thus, we should properly have it read, and the righteous one will live by his faith. Notice something else. Habakkuk was a prophet. He was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. He lived and prophesied before the Babylonian exile of 600 BC. So Paul's thought that the righteous ones, Tzadikim, it's plural, that the righteous ones live by faith, implying faith in the God of Israel, This is in no way a New Testament invention. Even more, Habakkuk, he was essentially quoting from Genesis, from the Torah, Genesis 15.6. He, Avram, believed in Adonai and he credited it to him as righteousness. Same thought. So the exact same strand of Hebrew thought that began with Abraham, picked up and rephrased hundreds of years later by Habakkuk, is now directly brought forward to Paul's day in the book of Romans as Paul explains the believer's relationship with God, especially as it concerns Christ. And we need to understand it in Romans in its original Old Testament Hebrew terms. Not try to redefine it for a Greek or Gentile Christian viewpoint. Let's move on. Paul now begins to flesh out this question. Pretty good question. If the gospel of Yeshua is the power of God for salvation for those who have and believe and have faith, then what of those who do not accept the gospel? The short answer? He says they receive God's wrath. God's wrath is not far from being a taboo subject in many congregations. The rationale is that Jesus can't be love and wrath at the same time. Therefore, since God is love, and since we are supposedly all New Testament believers with Jesus as our new God, then divine wrath has to be a thing of the past. It's all over and done with. The Old Testament God was full of wrath. The New Testament God is only full of love. So Paul makes a liar out of that absurd absurd position in verse 18. 
I want to say this as well. Paul is expressing that the same gospel, the same power of God that saves also produces God's wrath from heaven for the unrighteous. Why is that? Because the gospel is above all else just. It's just. I mean, how can anything be considered just if there is no distinction between or definition of wrong behavior versus right behavior? And if there's no consequence for wrong behavior or blessing for right behavior? How can it be just? So where does the definition of right and wrong come from? Where is it written? So that we can know what it is in the Torah. The law of Moses specifically. The Apostle John agrees with that. In 1 John 3, 4 he says, Everyone who keeps sinning is violating Torah. Indeed, sin is violation of Torah. Or as the King James Version puts it, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For the sin is, for sin is the transgression of the law. Notice that the Apostle John's New Testament definition of sin, which is violating the law, the law of Moses, is precisely the same is the Old Testament definition of sin. Christ pays the price for our wrong behavior. But he has no need to pay for anything, anything and has no need to pay anything for our right behavior. So once again, this tight connection between the gospel and the covenant of Moses is made by both Paul and John. Let's read just a couple more verses in Romans. Open up your Bibles again to Romans 1. We're just going to read verses 18 through 20. Page 1402. What is revealed is God's anger from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who in their wickedness keep suppressing the truth because what is known about God is plain to them since God has made it plain to them for ever since the creation of the universe his invisible qualities both his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen because they can be understood from what he has made therefore they have no excuse Notice that in Romans 1.18 that suppressing the truth is one of those wrong behaviors that the ungodly and the unrighteous do. What is truth? God's word is the truth. God's covenants, God's gospel are the truth. It is virtually a crime 
with possible jail time involved for telling the truth of the gospel in Israel. If you are a believing Jew who wants to immigrate to Israel, every effort will be made by the Israeli government to prevent you from coming unless you will renounce the gospel in front of a rabbi who will certify it. So that we don't lose the forest because of the trees, remember that Paul is writing this letter, everything we're studying here, to Roman believers in the city of Rome. Many are Gentiles. Many are Jews. And he is telling them that the Jews of Rome who refuse to believe and who make being a Jewish believer difficult are themselves the targets of God's wrath. Why? Why is this important? Because Judaism taught then that simply having a Jewish heritage was enough to be in good stead with God. Paul also says that if you don't know who God is, it's because you don't want to. God has shown you who He is in the awesomeness of His creation. Some ways that itself ought to suffice. So don't blame God if you receive His wrath. Blame yourself. Understood. I rather understand. There's, there, there is no evidence of atheism in these times. As a matter of fact, it seems that historically atheism is a new phenomenon that began in Europe in the 1700s as a result of the Enlightenment philosophers. So when we read in verse 19 that God has made himself known to everyone, it doesn't mean that people in the Bible days were making a decision as to whether there was such a thing as a God. The issue was, who is God? Now let me make something else plain. Anyone who argues against creation as a product of the God of the Bible. A universe and everything that exists, seen and unseen, that is a creation, that is a little more than an expression of God's will, then that person has taken hold of a deception that will leave them deceived about almost everything else that involves God. When I hear of a Christian who says they do not accept the creation story, that creation was not of God, but rather it was something from the natural realm, I have serious concerns about their claim of salvation. If God says that the prime evidence of Him is His creation, and you don't believe in a divine creation, then you are rejecting the prime evidence of God. That's not very stringent logic. I mean, how that can possibly coexist with salvation, I can't fathom. If to you, creation's not the truth, 
Why would you believe in the gospel? I say you can't. Rather, you have deceived yourself to believe that you're saved. Even more, Paul says that in reality, God's existence is evident to everyone, and that even includes the unrighteous. So what a denier of God is doing is actively working at not believing in God. Because the evidence is so clear and powerful, man, it takes a real effort not to believe. You know, as a young person, I scoffed at this statement of Paul. But the older I get, the more I see the absolute truth of it. Paul continues his argument against any excuse for non-believers in verse 20 and continues to base it on the reality of creation itself. Let me paraphrase. Paul says that although the power of God is invisible, the result of what that power has wrought, the universe, easily seen. No reasonable person can believe that the universe just happened without there being something or someone who made it happen. Thus what we can see as we step outside and we look all around us is all the proof that anyone needs to know that God exists even what some of His qualities are. Listen to the beginning of this beautiful psalm of David. Psalm 19. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. For the leader, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The dome of the sky speaks the work of His hands. Every day it utters speech. Every night it reveals knowledge. Without speech, without a word, without their voices being heard, their line goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world, and them he places a tent for the sun. It comes out like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber with delight like an athlete to run his race. It rises at one side of the sky, circles around to the other, and nothing can escape its heat. The creation of God's truth is every bit as much the same thing as God's word being God's truth. To deny the creation is to deny the word of God. But equally important to grasp is that the biblical truth is not merely something to which our intellects agree. It is something that we are to have faith in and we are to obey. From God's perspective, sin is a denial, a rejection, or a rebellion against His divine truth. There's so much more that needs to be said as we continue with Romans chapter 1 next week.